0: Welcome back, listeners, to this week's episode of If I Only Knew. Today, we've got a really difficult and quite thorny topic discussing the current events going on in Afghanistan at the moment. Um, There's a really serious, weighty political topic that has real consequences for a lot of people, um, but maybe we can add a little bit to the discussion about what might be going on in the minds of young people today looking in on these events who are feeling really quite distraught and concerned about what's going on. I'm with my co-host here, Fred, as always. Fred, good day. How are you doing?
1: day, listeners, and hello, Matt. How are you? Yeah. Um, well, lots of distress, lots of distress about something happening half a world away. And I'm really keen to hear what's going on for you and your cohort and the impact it's having. So, mm-hmm. Why don't you tell us a little bit about it? I know for those that don't know, Matt has a really rich passion for politics and history and those sorts of things. So what does Afghanistan represent to you and what's the history of Afghanistan that people need to know?
0: Yeah, no, thanks for it. I appreciate you chucking it to me because I've been doing a bit of digging into this. It seems really important whenever you've got a modern crisis to ask, how did we get here? And I'm sure plenty of our listeners are kind of aware of what's going on in Afghanistan. You know, it's an almost unavoidable news story at the moment. Um, So just really recently, there's been the... American war in Afghanistan over the last kind of 20 years, trying to fight the Taliban, a response to the war on terror, all that kind of thing. After this protracted conflict, not seeming to have a clear resolution, the Americans have decided to pull their military out. Um, It's kind of a two or three year plan that's coming to its culmination at the moment. And that has very quickly resulted in the overtaking of the country by the Taliban and their military force. So there's a, a lot of turmoil and unrest in the country as regimes have quickly changed with the U.S. pulling out. And there's a lot of consequences for the Western sympathisers in Afghanistan who probably face a lot of quite serious peril to themselves, and there's like a sort of a cultural conflict going on in Afghanistan as well about the appropriate way to govern and um, manage their country. But how did we get here, right, Fred? Because that's the what you'll hear in the current events. That's a really quick lightning speed um, up-to-date of what's happening now, and if anyone needs more info, google it there's so much going on about it but i was curious just to see how we ended up here and so i did some digging i clicked on like a just a few wikipedia articles and started searching and i was start, started first with the soviet cold war afghanistan because i knew that there was a big conflict in afghanistan during that yeah. i started there and basically afghanistan was um a bit of a, a battleground for the um cold war as the soviets pushed in and supported a uh, communist regime there and it was quite a strategic location being in central asia uh, an important part of that, but as I was doing my research there, I kept being linked back to to earlier conflicts, Fred. So I was looking yeah. at the the Soviet conflict, and then it was referencing some uh, some times of peace and a, a bit of earlier conflict as well in the interwar period, sort of nineteen twenties and thirties, mm-hmm. and. Um, As I was researching that, it linked me back even further to um, conflicts in Afghanistan during what was called the Great Game in the 1800s between the British colonial empire and the Russian empire at the time. And now this is something I didn't know, where Afghanistan served as something of a a buffer zone between the Russian empire in Central Asia and the British empire in India, the British Raj in India, uh, because these were two competing colonial interests and they they needed a place to put a a barrier between their two empires. And Afghanistan became that battleground. So, what I took away from this, this is obviously a very rich history um, before then as well. This is that—that's a brief summary of the last two hundred years. There's an extremely rich history before that time as well that involves a lot of migration and interconnectedness because Afghanistan sits at a crossroads between east and west, north it and does. south, yep. and it's created an extremely fascinating country that's well worth a, a bit of a watch. There's some great YouTube videos that I was quite inspired by because you have a variety of travellers and um, settlers from Greece, Turkic nomads, Muslim scholars, Chinese traders. It's fascinating. But for the last 200 years, Afghanistan seems to have been a country that's been torn in two as a uh, battleground for other countries because it holds this central strategic position and so that's what i was kind of reflecting on i was like wow this has been a history that has really involved a lot of conflict and suffering for the people that live there because first they were uh, political football between russia and colonial england then there were political football during the cold war and then more recently the war on terror has pitted afghanistan as a battleground for american interests in the middle east and so this, this kind of cycle of conflict really seems to be something that stood out to me as a part of the history of Afghanistan that I haven't heard talked about too much in contemporary uh, reporting on it because it is, you know, it's a bit of historical context um, and people might not think it's so relevant to the current crisis. But to me, it stood out that this is just one conflict and one disaster in a long line of disasters for the Afghani people that really made it seem almost more um, disheartening and
1: saddening to observe absolutely and and what you're saying there is historically afghanistan has been a a theater for proxy war Mm. and and from a sociological perspective there's some fascinating aspects in that history in that what has it done to a people that are constantly in conflict Mm. and there is a reason that that region has a reputation for being impossible to conquer or colonise. Yeah. It cannot be. And there's there's a lot of stuff around that. We're, We're not experts. We've both done research, but by far and large there are many, many, many smarter people out there that have studied this, what I've taken from what they have said is the Afghani people in their rich, mixed heritage have developed the capacity to use their land and landscape in the ultimate guerrilla warfare. Mm -hmm. And they have successfully repelled much larger colonial powers, the British, the Russians, now the Americans arguably, and again, and again, and again. Unfortunately, in the absence of that theater of war, it has the same issues that plague the region, which is that there is a tribal dynamic that is much older than what we've just talked about. Hmm. So you've got these deep tribal divides, generation upon generation that have been hardened by wars. Uh, a landscape a country itself with fantastic natural defenses and a people that know how to use them in the ultimate guerrilla warfare and you've got this political drive for afghanistan to be something that it's not the british had it the russians had it the americans had it and we can see how quickly entropy or the capacity for Afghanistan to go back to its natural state of whether that be internal strife or whatever happens so when you look at it from that perspective and I saw one person say with a degree of irony that the best way to defeat the Taliban is to just give them Afghanistan because nobody else has been able to hold it and they're getting it at the worst possible time. There are headlines now about the potential COVID crisis that will grip Afghanistan under the Taliban regime. We know the potential for human rights violations there are a very real and constant concern. We know that any radical regime is going to cause huge upheaval, but more importantly, those tribal divides are still there so it's not like one unified uniform set of people that you know get given back or take back a country and there's a bit of a fundamentalist stuff it's a fractured state it's, it's a it's a patchwork of people that are all as hard as nails in their own way they've suffered more than most so what do you look at now when you look at this modern thing it's probably one of the most desperate just hurtful I don't even have words to describe what we're seeing. but what does it mean for you guys in your generation?
0: It's one of the things I think that history and conflict is something that stands out to me as something that makes it feel more, more hurtful. I think because it speaks to a long line of failed projects of Westernization particularly in that region and i think that at this point my people my age my generation 20 25 years old we've grown up so we were born at the beginning of these projects of westernization in a lot of ways and we've grown up watching them slowly get undermined and failed throughout these regions i would argue there aren't a ton of democratic projects in other countries that have worked. And I think a lot of people my age have just grown up watching them fail. And so Afghanistan feels to be the most recent in a long line of failed projects to democratize countries in that region. And I think people my age are more and more disenchanted with that as a project and more and more unhappy with the idea that that we're going in and interfering with other people's businesses and saying this is how you should do things. And so I think that when we've seen that for 200 years other countries have tried to impose themselves upon Afghanistan, this failure of significant change in Afghanistan from the American project just kind of seems like a disappointing culmination of all that push and pull in Afghanistan uh, that we've been seeing. And I think young people are just disheartened and um, really disappointed with the way perhaps modern political projects have been conducted to try and change this, this country from what it was to what we thought it should be, perhaps. It's obviously very
1: much more complicated than that, but... Can I ask a question of you and it's a loaded question and I I make no apologies. (laughs) What does your generation think about the idea of being in Afghanistan, the initial war on terror what does that mean to you as a justification for 20 years of conflict? So obviously I don't speak for every... Uh, no, no, no. no right, we we'll get that.
0: And I suspect it might be different if you were an American 20-year-old, I wonder. But certainly for me in the circles that I move in, and the people I speak to, it just seems like an absurd situation that we've... Ended up in like I don't understand. It's not true. I do understand why, but it seems um, unjustifiable if you're simply looking at an attempt to bring rational democracy to these other countries. That's not a good enough reason to go in and invade um, and participate in a war like this. Uh, I've had plenty of my friends say like Why the hell were we there? You know what on earth have we achieved? What was the goddamn point of it? And I think that what we've seen in the last 20 years is a slight shift of mindset toward a. A bit more of a relativist viewpoint about what's right and wrong. Um, so I think more young people that I talk to are a bit more willing to say, look, let people in other countries have their way of doing things that are extremely historically rooted. It's very, very challenging to change that kind of thing as like an outsider and going in there and enforcing your way of righteousness. I suspect looking at the uh, rhetoric and actions from 40 years ago in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, there was much more of a of a passion for intervening in other countries' affairs and saying, we're going to bring democracy. We're going to have a, a global world order that values equality and fair say and freedom. And we're going to share that. I think that young people today have seen um, too many projects like that fail in Libya, in Afghanistan, in Syria. And a lot of young people just would like people to be able to have a bit more self-determination within their own country rather than other countries enforcing that self-determination? I think this is where the crux of the
1: argument is, and this is where the complexity resides. So to begin with, the biggest event in my life that I can recall, there are others, there are big events, but I remember coming home, turning on a television after the first tower fell in 9-11 and seeing in real time, seeing the plane flying to the second tower. And I remember sitting there for about six hours, going to work and literally that entire day, it was all about Mm, 9-11. You talk about the American conflict in in Afghanistan. I want to say very openly, there's a couple of things I want to say as disclaimers here. Firstly, we are aware it was an allied intervention Mm. in Afghanistan, led by the Americans, and a coalition of which Australia is a part of. I also want to say whether it's an Australian Armed Services individual, any allied service and in fact any service individual in that Afghanistan conflict that gave their time and lost their life, we are in no way disrespecting the freedoms that we're entitled to because of our military. I think there is a very different argument about the role of a military versus the role of politicians. And I would say, I'm not gonna speak for Matt, But the fact that Australians lost their life in a theatre of war, I think is something that we would always need to be grateful for. And I think it's much easier to do it when you win that war and you're the victors versus when you retreat after there have been heavy losses and it looks like the effort didn't accumulate a great deal. But regardless of that, I'm not going to ever sit here and say that I would ever condemn the Australian military. Um, The Australian military polices itself and rightfully so, and and that's another conversation. But I I just want to thank people for their service because I enjoy the freedoms that we get from time to time because we have to have a military force that will go into conflict. With that said, as I've gotten older, I have learned that what we were told about the war on terror has so many layers of political um, and economic motivation as to be uh, probably one of the biggest cons of my lifetime. We know that 9-11 was a terror attack, but it was predominantly Saudi citizens that had been radicalized. We know that in that part of the world, there were a great many disenfranchised individuals possibly disenfranchised because they had been supported against the Russians by American and allied forces in conflicts like Afghanistan, the interference or the abandonment they felt after that, or promises broken, uh, radicalised them against the West, predominantly America, but not just America. We've seen issues in Australia, we've seen issues in the UK. I believe now that part of the intervention in Afghanistan was a very real proxy to say, as allied forces in the West, the right-thinking democratic uh, people that we are, we'll show the Russians because Afghanistan prior to this conflict had been known as Russia's Vietnam. Hmm. It's the one time the Russian Empire had really had uh, just a crushing defeat. And you can't tell me that didn't play into the minds of people that wanted to go and show the military might of allied forces compared to Russia at a time where Russia was quite vulnerable, and it's not so much anymore. The irony that makes me feel really sick is that Russia's now supporting and legitimizing the Taliban state yeah. as a counterstrike, and And really, I just think it boils down to the fact that nobody really gives a shit about Afghanistan. Yeah. Part of the, if you take away the rhetoric of the war on terror, which which included Iran, Iraq, uh, Libya, Afghanistan, and that whole movement, there was no doubt at the time that there was a humanitarian crisis Mm -hmm. in Afghanistan because of, and I'm not political, but because of the radical regime of the Taliban. Mm -hmm. And uh, the great Christopher Hitchens, whether you like him or not, speaks very eloquently about the fact that if you want to stop poverty, oppression, war and conflict, you look at the rights of women in any environment. And he was very vocal about the fact that under the Taliban regime, there were no freedoms for women in Afghanistan. Mm. They were seen or are seen by the Taliban at the time and or maybe in the future as goods and chattel for men. Now when we talk about non-interference this is a question i have of you because this is where it gets really really ugly for me yeah because in australia where we have arguably equality do we have a responsibility in other parts of the world to make sure that people aren't exploited or does self-determination and respect for that self-determination mean that you let them get away with atrocities
0: This is the, the the question, isn't it, Fred? And I think that I'm glad that you've brought it back to this because you've highlighted that there is no right answer. So responsibility to protect R2P is a, a, a really thorny political issue at the moment, of course, and always has been. And I think that when I say that young people are more keen to let countries decide for themselves or have some self-determination or whatever, it feels that that comes less from a place of, like, what should happen and more from a place of what we've seen actually happens because yeah. I don't think... Um, when we talk about responsibility to protect there are some instances that triggered this like idea do we have this responsibility one of the ones that stands out to me is of course the rwandan genocide we don't have a ton of time on this podcast to delve into the intricacies of political theory here but it seems very very clear that the international community probably should have intervened in the rwandan genocide and they did not so there was a responsibility to protect in that circumstance however um events such as that Triggered this like international outcry. We have a responsibility, we must protect people. But then we saw that used in places like Libya, the war on terror, Syria, Afghanistan. Well, what I've seen in the last 20 years in my lifetime is that most modern efforts that use the responsibility to protect as justification for intervention have actually destabilized a region more than they've caused positive outcomes. And that's where I think that young people are a bit less enamored with the idea of valiantly marching in and saving people from atrocities, because it seems that when when that has been done over the last 20 years, there are a few examples of success, but quite a few examples of causing more problems. Um, and so for me, that's why I lean towards on a pragmatic side saying we probably should be far more careful about when we choose to step in to protect people than perhaps we have been in a place like
1: afghanistan but if, I was, if i was super cynical about it i would ask the question because there are multiple conflicts and atrocities going on in the african continent as mm. we speak mm. i think the distinction between what you've talked about with conflicts in africa which are still ongoing mm and the Middle East, their similarity is there are deep tribal lines that we can't understand and tribal divisions anthropologically and sociologically that we will not understand in young nations and in a way the westernized Americas, etc. But if I was being hyper cynical, I would say the reason that we can turn a blind eye to the atrocities in Africa Hmm. which are prolific and arguably the human rights violations in China. That's a good point. And, and again, for those out there, you know, I'm a psychologist. This is just a personal opinion, is the economic upside. Hmm. Yeah. Because we know regardless of the reason for war, the right to protect, there is no doubt that the allied forces are uh, maybe predominantly America and the UK were looking at the economic opportunity after stabilising the region. Mm. There are so few of those opportunities in Africa that haven't already been exploited that it's not worth the effort. Now the other aspect is there's not a lot of anti-Western rhetoric in Africa. So, you know, it's sort of like, well, we'll leave them to them because there's no real upside for us and they're not really threatening us, but there's a lot of upside for us to dig into the ground and find oil in the region that Afghanistan sits in and they rattle their sabres at us and make us the good guys, the bad guys. Yeah. Yeah,
0: I think that we have. You've pulled out a couple of very important strands there, Fred. And in some ways, they're strands that we don't have the scope to address in any appropriate detail, given how complex they can be. If you're interested in these topics, Google them. Fred and I are pulling this information from our own research, our own experiences, the things we've consumed. Um, There's plenty of good information. Two guys talking
1: about current affairs. Yeah,
0: there's plenty of good information out there. Um, Something that I uh, really appreciated you touching on is the fact that a lot of these nations in conflict-ridden nations have borders that have been drawn drawn quite recently by colonial powers who didn't quite understand the actual divisions within the the area. I think that it's very hard to dispute that colonial border drawing is one of the root causes of the vast majority of conflict in the modern world, and has a lot to answer for, really. Another idea that you touched on is, of course, this like economic cynicism. And I know that that's an idea that is quite prevalent among cynical young people. I don't know enough facts to really comment on it, um, but it certainly seems like there are some very vested interests in energy security and wealth uh, that have drawn attention to certain areas uh, that wouldn't otherwise have had that attention drawn to okay, it hey? yeah. I think that what's the real tension in the Afghani conflict is that we have seen really significant improvements in quality of life for the last 20 years for a lot of Afghanis who uh, benefit under the under the American occupation American support whatever you want to call it Um, and that's another idea that I think speaks really closely to the hearts of a lot of young people because I think that um, one reason a lot of young people are so distraught is because we have this sense uh, some sense of kinship with a lot of young progressive Afghanis because as people who are 20 years old people who are my age in Afghanistan have not lived under a Taliban regime yet because they were born after the regime was removed.
1: There's a remarkable aspect to that, because in the research that I was looking at, prior to the Taliban regime coming into power and then being deposed by Allied forces, It was really progressive for a time in Afghanistan, Mm -hmm. particularly for women. Certainly
0: in the cities, particularly for women, right? And I think this is...
1: Late 60s, early 70s, you know, 1968, I saw a photo and you wouldn't know they were on the streets of what we now call Afghanistan. It could have been George Street in the city.
0: Yeah. I was reading a little bit about the urban-rural divide with that kind of progression. And I think that that has persisted into the modern world. Um, But broadly speaking, like, as you say, there is a whole generation of young women who've Largely gone to school, who've had an education in some degree or another that they simply wouldn't have had access to if the Taliban were in power. And that can be largely credited to the Allied intervention. Yep. I think that makes young people even more heartbroken about this situation because these people are now going to have to go live under that regime again. You so, I have a question, question
1: about that, though. Hmm. Given that there's this discussion about failed democracy, hmm and the occupation allowed a generation roughly your age to receive partially the freedoms that we enjoy, shouldn't we be more angry that America's just left rather than stay and occupy and be the bad guy?
0: Yeah, no, I think that that's that's where a lot of people's um, of my age's distress comes from. It's this fact that like, we are just leaving these young people our age to slip back into tyranny particularly, I think, urban Afghanis who helped the US intervention.
1: Let's call a spade a spade here. The true victims in this conflict will be the Afghani people. Yeah. Regardless of what side on the conflict they were Mm. or are, more people will be hurt by what's happening than not. Mm. I personally believe, it's just my opinion, I'll ask you this question, but I'll put my belief out there. Mm -hmm. We had Afghani citizens that supported the Australian military in a mission, Mm -hmm. and we have an obligation to those people, and I know our military believes that. And there's, there's, there's science behind it, or rather thinking behind it, is if you don't do the right thing by them, then we will not get citizenship support in the next conflict that we may enter into. We we enter into a contract here. I have two questions for you. One is, rather than depart, should we redeploy into Afghanistan (laughs) to preserve the freedoms that lots of people fought and suffered for and roll back the Taliban again and potentially commit ourselves to another 20 years of war? So I'll get you to answer that one first. Okay. And it's okay, because I don't know the answer to it No, either. of course.
0: Um, so, my answer has to be basically a resounding no, unfortunately, as much as I might like to uh, see a continuation of these freedoms that we've bought, And the distress that we're seeing in Kabul at the moment at the airport is just oh. horrendous, right? Um, but I, I accept some of the logic of the, of the Allied withdrawal, which is that... We've been here so long there's never going to be a perfect time to withdraw and so we might as well get out now. Now that's not nice logic but the idea is that the American occupation is no longer gaining ground. It's not winning hearts and minds. It's not gaining extra land. The Taliban isn't going to be going away as long as Americans can be positioned as the bad guy that needs ousting in a righteous cause from Afghanistan. And so I can appreciate the idea that this is going to be either a perpetual conflict that sees death and violence growing in the country for another two decades or we leave now and see what happens i also accept that the taliban took over even quicker than anyone
1: expected oh look if, if anybody thought after 20 years of yeah. conflict that the Taliban could literally roll that back in seven days with, yeah. n- without a great, di- without a shot fired. Yeah. Yeah. I honestly believe that is the single greatest embarrassment yeah. to the allied forces involved regardless. Yeah. Nobody – I have to say, if you want to legitimise the Taliban as a political and military force – letting them roll you in seven days yeah. <laughs> was probably a great idea.
0: And as right? I as I understand it from my limited military knowledge, the key key advantage the Taliban exploited was their lack of morale in the Afghani army. So here's in- the
1: question. Here's the, yep. here's the biggest issue that I have. So my answer to the question is, should we roll it back? Should we re-engage it? Look, I, I don't know, but I do know this. The counter-argument is if you spend 20 years building a military force and a democracy and that force wasn't self-sustaining enough to roll back the taliban because they effectively surrendered mm. then you have no greater obligation to protect people than they have to protect themselves mm. Mm. yeah and they didn't and in fairness to them i'm not going to say why i don't i don't care so my second question moving past that great world stuff is Matt, what's Australia's obligation to Afghani people now? Yeah. So we can't fix it over there. Yeah. We've learnt that. What do you want to do?
0: I know that the, the view that I hear the most is that we have a duty to as many Afghanis as we can help, um, primarily um, Afghanis who helped us, people we had any contact with, translators, assistants, uh, their families, bloody newspaper boys. Um, I don't really care, you know, Um, because I'm fully under the belief that retaliation will be high on the list once the new regime comes full into force, because that's how it's always worked throughout history. And I think that the fact that we'd be leaving people who've helped us to face that retaliation is um, deplorable. There's a few ideas behind this sense of duty. So, well, just on like a general philosophical level, I think that when you enter into a relationship with someone in any sense, so like as you say, for a contract, you've got a relationship with someone um, that creates some kind of a a moral duty, right? That's a a common thought throughout moral thinking for a long time is that we have duties to people based on our relationships to them. And therefore, if we have a relationship with people in Afghanistan, we should help them. We have a duty to do that. The other like practical side of it though, the thing that has me kind of most concerned is the actual process of getting people out. So you've talked about the embarrassment of the Taliban rolling through the country so quickly. I think there's a, a real embarrassment as well in the process of extraction that's been Completely. going on. like how did we not get more people out before this panic happened i think there's a couple of reasons for that i probably won't go too far into it because i'm not an expert on that but to me that is a glaring problem that we face in afghanistan because and i don't know if you've heard this but i was redoing some extra research just today at the time of recording there was a, a terrorist attack around the airport at kabul that's killed like tens, dozens, maybe even a 100 people because it's this perfect target for terror attacks. Absolutely. And, and so the Americans have set a deadline for when they're pulling out of Kabul airport and it's the 31st of August, yep. which is not nearly enough time to get everyone that the Allied forces feel they have a duty to out. And I know there's been international pressure to extend that, but the Americans, and they may well have... Um, justification in saying this, just are concerned about the safety and um, opportunity of keeping this airport open. There's already been one terrorist attack there. It's, yeah. a, it's a hotbed for violence. And so I can't believe we let it get to this situation where we actually don't have the logistics to get our forces out and the people that we have a duty to out.
1: I'm of the belief that if you stood with us, we have to stand by you. Mm. And I am of the belief that if people put themselves in jeopardy to support Australian military, them, their family, mums, dads, brothers, sisters, because I agree with you, retribution is guaranteed. What I'm amazed by in this whole scenario, and I don't think people make enough of it, is Afghanistan has neighbours. Mm-hmm. And one of the weirdest things for me is while we're a half a world away now saying, because I believe we have a responsibility to take Afghani refugees and give them the opportunity of a new life here, and I think we should uh, let them in with open arms personally. That's just my take on it. But I find it remarkable how indifferent the rest of the region is. And I would be saying now, because there are some real powers in that environment, and saying to them, you talk to these guys, you know them, you know, you can negotiate with them, create a corridor for people that don't want to be there to leave. We're not going to take them all because you guys want to look at the human capital as well. And this is the irony that the surrounding uh, neighbors to Afghanistan will take people that are viable or useful to them. So it's a form of forced migration for them. And, and there's lots of people that work all over the Middle East with skills, engineers, etc. They'll open their doors to those people. Yeah. Okay? not so much the rural uh, population etc cetera, etc cetera. so use the people in the region because it's got to de-escalate the conflict because what are they going to do drop a hundred thousand troops into Kabul airport and as you said because this is the word I heard this week that I hadn't heard for a long time al-qaeda mm. isis I heard isis yeah you know it's that whole axis of evil thing again and it's yeah. like you know what it doesn't matter if it's some lunatic with a car bomb you got to de-escalate, you've got to get out of it. It is such a complex issue, Matt. I don't think we could ever scratch the surface of it. Mm. You know, in closing, the only thing I can say is I see the pain that these sorts of conflicts cause refugees in Australia, people of Afghani heritage in Australia that have come here, they've integrated in society, but it also has an effect for Vietnamese refugees that are remembering what it was like in a post-Vietnam collapse. People still remember, you know, my father still remembers the collapse of a World War Two and the new hope of refugees that came here and built our nation. I respect those people that served a mission over there, and this is what we learned coming next, is that there are other ways to assert pressure in that region to ensure the rights of women, Mm. rather than going boots on the ground, guns blazing, I think, economic participation, aid, uh, an international community and renewed vigour to include the neighbours in the region as part of the solution So if there are certain factions that now hate us, that's something that we need to live with. But if there are people that need our help, get them out, and it might take 5, 10, 15 years to get everybody out, and there's going to be a huge loss of life and lots of retribution. So, again, hundreds of years of the Afghani people losing while other people play proxy in their backyard. Nothing fair about that.
0: Yeah. I think my takeaway from it is the war in Afghanistan is as old as I am for it. Yeah. And, and it's as old as all my peers are. And I think that that's mind blowing. I think it it shapes my view of the conflict and my view of what we should and shouldn't have done. And it shapes my view of what we should and shouldn't do into the future. Yeah. Um, I like drawing on history I think it's very important we remember what's been going on in this region for so long even reflecting on the consequences of the colonial activity around the middle east i think is a is a very useful exercise to remind us how we got to this place in the first instance um yeah as you say this has been very very weighty politics is different from service i do agree with you there fred um all that being said i think it's just one of the most for me, it's the, it's the culmination of a long line of terrible situations that I've just kind of witnessed the end of rather than the start of, which uh, brings a lot of a lot of weight to them, I think.
1: This is a good one to send in your thoughts and comments on, guys. We'd love to hear from people that have experienced some of this stuff. It might be a story of trauma or a story of triumph, but, you know, get in touch. Uh, Matt, I'm going to say goodbye for today. Mm-hmm. You leave me with more unanswered questions, but I'll always amazed by the depth of thought that you bring to these conversations. I learned a lot from you today. So thank you, my friend. Thank you very much as
0: well, Fred. This has been a heavier one, but a really important one as well. I hope we've added something to the discussion. Thanks.
1: All right. Thank you, listeners. We'll talk to you next week from If I Only Knew. See ya. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Better Pod Group production, with special thanks to our researcher, Nicola Binks, executive producer, Matt Blanche, the providers of our theme song with credits that are in our bio, and of course, you, the listener. It's important to remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Whilst there are therapeutic themes discussed, in no way is a podcast considered treatment, and in the event you're in a psychological emergency, please reach out in whatever way you can through Triple Zero or Lifeline 13 11 14. It's important to remember that the discussion is for entertainment purposes, and the opinions voiced by podcast hosts are theirs and theirs alone. Any reference to copyright or copywritten material is, of course, the copyright of the copyright owner and or relevant corporate entities. Thank you for listening to Bad Pod Group Productions and in to some of our other excellent pod productions on this network.